We are dealing this evening with Article 34 of the Belgic Confession. You find that on page 852 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. We're going to read some words that some would say them is fighting words. And uh, there's some discomfort in all of this. I'm not sure what kind of theological background you come from, but what you're going to hear tonight is peculiarly reformed, a reformed approach to baptism and to the scriptures. And so um, keep the tomatoes at bay. We, uh, <laughs> we trust that you will understand that this is a confession that the church is built upon, and this is... Um, centuries old. So we're going to pick up the second part of this particular article on page uh, 852. I'm not going to read the whole article because it's quite, quite long. So we'll just pick up where we, where we left off. And in the message, it'll become clear how this all fits together uh, through the whole article. So we're going to pick it up in the first paragraph there where it says, so ministers in 852. Ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible, but our Lord gives what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man, the new person, stripping off the old with all its works. For this reason, we believe that anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once, without ever repeating it, for we cannot be born twice. Yet this baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. And here come them fighting words. For that reason, we detest the error of the Anabaptists, who are not content with a single baptism once received and also condemn the baptism of the children of believers. We believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel and on the, base, on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And truly, Christ has shed his blood no less for, the wash, for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, just as the Lord commanded in the law that by offering a lamb for them, the sacrament of the suffering and death of Christ would be granted them shortly after their birth. This was the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, baptism does for our children what circumcision did for the Jewish people. That is why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. So far, the reading from our confession, Lord, Article 34, and you might want to keep that in front of you as we go along. Our scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, first of all, and second from Colossians chapter 2. Some of the wording that we also read in this article. So first of all, Genesis 17, right at the beginning of the Bible, and we'll read the first uh, 14 verses. Genesis 17. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down, face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So far from Genesis, and then we discover as, as you read further that indeed that happened. And then if you go to Colossians chapter 2, toward the end of the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, two Sunday evenings ago when Pastor Betsy began our look at Article 34 of the Belgic Confession, we looked at what baptism symbolizes, namely the cleansing from sin and washing. So just as 
Water washes away dirt from the body, so Christ washes us from all our sins, and baptism and water symbolizes that. Besides the symbolism of washing, there is the symbolism of union with Christ and initiation into the community of God. And then Pastor Betsy went on and introduced us to the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. You may remember that. And how a five-year-old saw that rabbit as telling us something about what baptism is all about. The Velveteen Rabbit chronicles the story of a stuffed rabbit's desire to become real through the love of his owner. And the more the boy of the story carried his stuffed rabbit around, the more scraggly the rabbit became. But because of the boy's love for the rabbit, eventually it became a real live rabbit. It was transformed from a stuffed rabbit to a real one. The old maid knew. Yet another truth symbolized by baptism. The sacrament of baptism is a wonderful, meaning-filled, audio-visual, if you will, that illustrates the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it speaks volumes about God's grace to us, his people. And we were reminded in that message, the first one on uh, baptism, that the key to the reformed understanding of of baptism is an understanding of that biblical term covenant which we'll get to in a few minutes but certainly a very important thing to remember as we think about baptism both sacraments for that matter baptism and Lord's Supper is that they are the Lord's activity not ours he's the, the chief actor so many parents often mistakenly think that baptism is about their promises into the Lord. And so you go on a baptism visit and you say, so what are you doing? And they say, well, we are returning our child to the Lord and we're making promises to the Lord. And, and you go, well, not really. Baptism is about God's promises to the one being baptized. It's God's audiovisual, God's grace. We are the recipients to which we respond and make promises. Now tonight, we continue our look at the sacrament of baptism through the eyes and teaching of Article 34, which offers, as I mentioned before, a uniquely reformed perspective on the sacrament. And so as we do that, we can't help but notice that disagreements about the sacraments and what they mean and how they ought to be practiced have been hotly debated for centuries by people in the church. And sadly, the sacraments have been the subject of major church divisions, even today. And we see some of that as we note the language used by the writer of the Belgic Confession against another branch of the Christian family, the group whose errors were detested by the writer of the Belgic Confession were people known as the Anabaptists. These were folks who at the time of the Reformation had, Reformation had already been baptized in the Roman Catholic Church as infants, but then upon the reading of scriptures through a different set of glasses, felt that they needed to be rebaptized as adults, hence the name Anabaptists or those who are 
baptized again. It's true, the Belgian Confession was written at a time of history when people tended to get quite hot under the collar about those who disagreed with them. And in the church, persecution of those who disagreed with you was not uncommon. And so it was not unusual for the Reformed folks or those who adhered to the baptism of believers and their children to use the language, to detest, as it were, the error of the Anabaptists. Now, today we don't use that kind of language anymore. The Christian Reformed Church has gone on record to say that we would not use such language anymore, but the Belgian Confession is a historical document, and so the wording has not been changed. But while we do not detest the error of the Anabaptists, and while we call them sisters and brothers in Christ, yet on the practice and the teachings concerning baptism, we differ. And we differ because of the glasses that we wear when we read scripture, so to speak. And while my believer's baptism friends and family members do not accept the baptism of children born of believing parents, and while they would insist on a rebaptism at the time of adulthood, a baptism connected with a person's profession of faith, as reformed Christians, we hold to our perspective and we're not about to let it go. And so reading the scriptures with our peculiar set of glasses, we would continue to insist, first of all, that one ought to be baptized, as says Article 34 says, only once without ever repeating it. Then the confession goes on to say why. It goes on to say that that's like we cannot be born twice. Because we can't be born twice, we can't be rebaptized or baptized twice. It's safe to say that we basically have difficulties with being rebaptized, although some would consider it to be absolutely no big deal. And the reason that they say it's no big deal and therefore are rebaptized is because of their perspective on what baptism is and who it's about. And so some would argue for rebaptism. They would argue that they want to be rebaptized because they, after all, had no say in their being baptized as a child. I, I wasn't there consciously. So I had no choice in it all. I didn't feel anything. I wasn't able to repent. That's what the New Testament calls us to do, and so forth. Many of the arguments about being rebaptized have to do with the person's own presence, own decision making, own profession, and so forth. It has to do with the person's faith or repentance or whatever. And therefore, baptism is very closely connected with someone's profession of faith and their walking with the Lord and becoming a Christian. Much of the emphasis, much of the thinking has to do with an emphasis on the person being baptized and whether or not they understand or can repent or agree or whatever. It has to do with the human perspective, with our perspective. Whereas, if you remember what a definition of a sacrament is, it's God's holy sign and seal. The sacrament is about the Lord and his promises to us, not about us and our promises to him. 
And when we see baptism from that perspective, then we're reminded that it's a one-time event. God makes his promises to us once and seals them in baptism once. In many ways, to be rebaptized is as strange as to ask for ask a person born. Uh, no, it's as strange to ask for rebaptism as it is for a person born in Canada to go to the government and ask for re-citizenship. I was born in Canada, but I didn't have a choice, and I did not ask for it. I did not feel anything. I want to have a say in it. So please consider my request for re-citizenship. I suspect that if you would go to the government with such a request, you would get some rather puzzled looks. You're a citizen by birth. Or it's something like an adopted child going to his adoptive parents and asking them to re-adopt her. I wasn't aware of what was going on when you picked me out of that nursery. I had no choice in what home I was going to. I did not feel anything. I want to make the decision. It ought to be my choice whether or not you adopt me. Really? Citizenship and adoption speak of grace. Without having to do anything, you're granted all the rights and all the privileges of citizenship in this country. Without having to do anything, you're given all the rights and all the privileges of the family that adopted you. You even get to call yourself a Canadian, or you get to call yourself by the name of the family that adopted you. You didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet that's what you can do. Baptism speaks of grace. It speaks of God's grace. We, by virtue of the fact that we are born into a Christian family, are included in his family. It's an initiation rite, the sign and seal of our belonging by grace. And the promises of God stated in our original baptism are, says the Belgian Confession, profitable throughout our entire lives. We need to respond to that. That's true. But this is the uniquely reformed understanding of baptism. But where do we begin in our understanding of baptism as taught by the reformed branch of the Christian faith? Well, it all has to do with how we read the scriptures. And when we read the scriptures, we read one unified book which tells us the story of the relationship of the Lord to his people, a relationship, by the way, which basically doesn't change from the Old to the New Testament. The relationship the Lord has with us, his people, is in the form of a covenant or an agreement or a promise which stands forever. And the word covenant takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. We're going to land at article or chapter 17. We could go back even further to the beginning of time, but for our purposes, we'll go to the time when Abraham was 99 years old. He and his wife, Sarah, didn't have any children, something that must have disturbed them greatly from time to time, since everyone wanted to an heir to carry on the family name and so on. But 
One day the Lord God came to Abraham and promised, as his new name implied, that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations. And then God went on and promised that Abraham's descendants would live forever in the land of Canaan and that God would forever after consider the descendants of Abraham as his specially chosen people, chosen as the very ones from whom the Savior was to come. And this has become known as the covenant of grace. God chose Abram and sent him from Ur of the Chaldeans to the promised land. And God did not choose Abram because he was anything special in and of himself, though he chose him by grace. And grace is getting something you do not deserve. And it was the Lord who initiated the relationship, not Abraham. It was the Lord who did the promising, not Abraham. It was the Lord who did the talking, not Abraham. It was the Lord who chose the partner, not Abraham. It was the Lord's covenant, not Abraham's. And the fact that the Lord was the initiator of the covenant is important. Now, whenever a covenant is made, whenever an agreement is made, there are three parts. There are the partners, the promises, the obligations, and the sign. Think of a marriage. Partners of the man and the woman, the promises or the obligations of the relationship are spelled, spelled out in the vows. The sign is the ring and finally the consummation in the marriage bed. Partners, promises, and the sign. Now think of Genesis 17 in the covenant of grace. The partners are God and Abraham, an unequal partnership. The promises of, are the ones the Lord gave to Abraham about kings and nations coming from him, the promise of the land, the promise of being a God to him and to his descendants, and so on. And then finally, the sign, the sign of the covenant, the sign of the special relationship was circumcision. All male babies had to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. And since it was a new covenant arrangement in Genesis 17, all the men as well as all the boys and babies from that point had to receive the sign, adults and their children. And not only was this sign to be given to Abraham's family, but also, also to the slaves as well. God wanted his people and everyone connected with them to bear this special covenant sign. And the Lord took the sign of the covenant so seriously that if any one of the people of Israel did not bear the sign of the covenant, it would be assumed that they rejected the Lord's covenant and thereby they would be exiled from among the people. A refusal to adhere to the sign of the covenant indicated disobedience and that was something the Lord could not abide. Now, circumcision was not unique to the people of Israel. It was a common practice among the nations of the day, even as it's a relatively common operation today. Its meaning, however, was unique to the people of God. When an agreement was made between two people, there was a cutting ceremony of some sort that went with it. As you may remember from Genesis 15, animals were cut in half. A cut was made in the hand or whatever. The idea was that one cut a covenant or an agreement, which was a serious and a solemn thing. So it was that God cut a covenant with his people and carved it, as it were, right into the flesh of the males in this patriarchal society. 
but even beyond the cutting or the carving out of the agreement, circumcision was a sign that imperfection, ungodliness, disobedience to the law of God was something that is passed on from generation to generation. It reminded people that they were sinful even from their very origin. And circumcision, which literally means cutting around, was the sign of the cutting away of sin or the sinfulness at the very point of the creation of new life. The idea being that the male was the one who had the seed to life. And the shedding of blood in circumcision was a sign of what must happen in order for mankind to be reconciled to God. Of course, the shedding of blood points forward to the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. You see, the passed on sinfulness of the human race must be replaced by a new life, a holy life, the life that God plants within us through the working of the Holy Spirit. Our natural fathers cannot give us that new life. And circumcision was a sign of or pointed people to the fact that mankind who is capable of reproducing, cannot save himself, and incapable of producing the sinless one. That's, of course, why the Virgin Mary was impregnated through a miracle, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Circumcision was an Old Testament sign of a special relationship which God had with his people Israel. Since young and old were part of that special people, they all had to be branded with a special sign. And through such a sign, they would be reminded that they were ex to expect salvation not to come through the improvement of each successive generation, not through evolution, but through the, nor through the seed of a mortal sinful man, but their salvation was to come through the shedding of blood on the part of the Messiah. And of course, that's precisely what happened. Salvation did come in the person of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' shed blood came our reconciliation with the Father. Through Jesus' shed blood, the sinfulness of all who believe in him is replaced by new life. Because Jesus' blood was shed, our blood does not need to be shed anymore. As Article 34 states, Jesus has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood. Like circumcision and the shedding of blood that accompanied that operation cannot nor needs to be repeated. So Jesus' shedding of his blood cannot and does not need to be repeated either. And so something now could take the place of circumcision and that something was baptism. The simple sign and seal of being washed, of being cleansed in the blood of Christ. Now there were many in the New Testament church that had great problems with the giving up of many of the Old Testament customs and traditions. They found it very difficult to give up uh, many of the rituals and the laws and the customs of Judaism which their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and so on had followed and performed for hundreds of years. And certainly one of the things that they insisted upon was that those who entered the church, that is the Gentiles, also carry the sign of the covenant upon their bodies. And that the perspective was that if one were to become a Christian, he or she must become a Jew first, and for men, that meant submitting to the ritual of circumcision. 
People were made to feel uncomfortable as second-class citizens if they did not fulfill the Old Testament ceremonial law requirements. And then along comes the Apostle Paul. And Paul challenged these sorts of ideas and these requirements rather strongly, rather vehemently, to say the least. And he writes in, verse, in the verses we read from Colossians 2, you were circumcised. Not with a, with a circumcision not made by human hands. In other words, you, new believers, were not perhaps physically circumcised, but nonetheless you were circumcised in the spiritual sense. That is to say, God cut a relationship with you through the work of Jesus and thereby cut away the sin of your heart. And because of your faith in Jesus, Christ has now renewed you. At one time you were not a people, as Peter put it. Now you are by faith a member of the covenant people of God. When and how did this happen? When you were baptized. Your baptism, Paul means to say here in Colossians 2, signified and sealed this putting off of the old dominated, the, the sin-dominated old nature. And baptism is therefore viewed in the New Testament as the spiritual equivalent of circumcision, so much so that Paul can say to the Colossians, you have been circumcised with a circumcision not made by hands because you have been baptized. And so baptism has taken the place of circumcision as a sign of God's special covenant relationship with his people. It's a sign of God's covenant of grace. It reflects the newness in Jesus Christ where according to Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Since baptism is administered to both male and female. So, says Article 34, we believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And then please note that it is the Lord who makes the promises to our children and us. And that's such an important thing to keep in mind when talking about the sacrament. Baptism is not based on our faith. It's not based on the promises we make. Rather, baptism is a sign and seal of Christ's promises to us. And therefore, the Heidelberg Catechism states rather emphatically that, yes, infants too should be baptized. There is a single, beautiful, unchanging covenant line that has been drawn through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's covenant and covenant promises have not changed throughout the centuries. The only thing that's changed is a sign of the covenant. And it makes baptism so beautiful and so overwhelming. God is the one who initiates the relationship He's the one who gives the promises and stays true to them. He's the one who carves it, as it were, into our hearts as he cuts around to root out sin. The sacrament is God's sign and seal of his promises to us. And so when it really comes down to it, says Henry de Moore, baptism is not a family event. It's a family of God event. The sign and seal of water confirms the gospel message, word and sacrament together, and reminds us all of the root of our salvation, not that we chose him, 
but that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It also signifies that the baptized, the person baptized is now a full member of the body of Christ, unquote. Now granted, those who were circumcised at eight days of age, those who are baptized as infants are not able to understand any of this. That's granted. They're not able to understand God's promises. That's precisely why the Lord places us in a Christian family and in a covenant community with Christian schools and the like. And like in the Old Testament, when parents were instructed to teach the commandments of the Lord to the next generation, so today's parents and Christian community is called upon to instruct the next generation in the promises given them by the Lord. We're called upon to tell the next generation just what sorts of promises the Lord gave to them in their baptism, and they need to respond to that. Every time we see baptism, we're going to see again in a couple of weeks, or when we think about baptism, even administered to infants, we who cannot understand what's going on, we can only marvel at God's wondrous grace and love. Amazing. It's amazing that he should have a relationship with us in spite of who we are and in spite of our understanding. Amen. Father in heaven, your grace to us is indeed amazing. You make promises to us when we can hardly even think about anything. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. And we thank you that you are a God who is unchanging in those promises. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we, as a community, may do all in our power to build faith in, our next, in the next generation and the next generation after that. So that they may respond, they may understand and get it and respond and live for you. Thank you, Lord, for your one-time sign to this beautiful sacrament of baptism. Give us understanding. Give us the grace to live with your promises. And help us, Lord, to grow in our faith all the time. We praise you for your word and for the confessions. And we ask, O oh Lord, for your blessing upon all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.